Welcome to the Presidents Podcast. I'm Ward Carroll, the Naval Institute's Director of Marketing and Outreach. Joining me is my co-host, the Proceedings Editor-in-Chief, Bill Hamlet. Hello, Bill. Hello, Ward. This is our last episode of uh, July 2020, so we've kind of almost survived the heat and humidity and the crazy thunderstorms of uh, flash flooding of, of July. Hopefully, hopefully we're moving into a quieter August. Well, it looks like Friday, um, the, the humidity is breaking, uh, you know, on my weather app. Um, so, um, yeah, I, I think you might might just be right. I mean, obviously, uh, eastern seaboard, never know what can happen in the old August, even into September. But, uh yeah, it's been pretty oppressive. Um, I have been paying attention to the weather because uh, the Naval Academy golf course is about to reopen. Um, it's been under renovation for the last year plus, and uh, they're going to reopen it. The grand opening is um, next Tuesday. That's um, exciting. So yeah, we're we're it, it looks great from uh, from you know the 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 road. They've rebuilt all the greens. They put new bunkers. They redesigned some of the holes. Um, so if you've ever played, if you're a listener who ever played the Navy course, um, in some cases you won't recognize the new holes, and you certainly will be pleased with uh, with how it looks. It's going to be one of the signature courses on the East Coast now. So um, that's very exciting, and thereby I'm also excited that the weather will be about 10 degrees cooler <laughs> because <laughs> it's a walking course. You know, they promote walking instead of riding in carts. It's also very hilly, so walking in uh, – a hilly course in 95, 100 degree weather is not exactly my favorite thing. So uh, anyway, that's happening. Meanwhile, the Naval Academy, um, the firsties got back on Monday. Second class got back on Tuesday. The plebes already are there. Uh, you know, they're actually doing plebe summer training now. Um, some sports teams are back and practicing uh, or at least doing conditioning. The football team is back and doing conditioning. So um, I don't know the exact numbers of COVID-19 positive within the brigade. I know they have had some. They have a very deliberate process for isolating uh, members of the brigade that, that pop positive. And I think this will become a model for undergraduate institutions nationwide, as well as military units. So bravo to Admiral Buck for making the call last spring to press. You know, other undergraduate institutions are not going to be doing face-to-face -face classes for myriad reasons. But the Naval Academy, Admiral Buck made the ruling last, uh, late last spring that, hey, I can't do the mission if, if everybody's remote, so uh, I need the brigade back. Now, the only question is the sophomores, because they need to dedicate one wing of Bancroft Hall to... Um, those who are COVID positive, the sophomores may or may not be coming back. Right now, there's no plan to bring them back, and it'll be predicated on how many COVID cases keep popping up once they actually have a bubble established. So um, stay tuned for, for more on that. Yeah, that's going to certainly be hard for the sports teams, right? You know, you get your, your uh, rising youngsters or your rising sophomores not able to come back you know how do they practice whatever their sport is back you know back home yeah that's a good anyway. point well i was talking to one of the golf coaches they have a lot of their power is in their sophomores and so this guy uh, was very concerned not the head coach but one of the assistant coaches uh that those guys might not return so yes but the good news is you know moving forward trying to figure it out adjusting to um 
to the COVID-19 environment. And, uh, you know, what are you going to do? I think this is as good as it's going to get in the interim. Yeah. Yeah. It's Semper Gumby. Everybody's adjusting. You know, I've got a, a young daughter uh, where there's a school meeting last night just discussing all the different options, hybrid, in-person, all remote. You know, I mean, every school, every university is dealing with this and, you know, we're dealing with it as well. Uh, before we get to our guest today, I just wanted to mention a couple of things coming up with the Naval Institute. You know, we've been dealing, our, our events and conferences team has been dealing with keeping things like the Maritime Security Dialogue series going. And the next one of those is going to be on 6 August. The uh, topic will be called The Movement Toward Greater Integration in Naval Warfare. Speakers will be Vice Admiral James Kilby, the Navy's Director for Warfighting Requirements and Capabilities, and Marine Lieutenant General Eric Smith, the Commander of Marine Corps Combat Development Command. So we'll be talking about Navy-Marine Corps integration, combat capabilities, expeditionary advanced base operations, all those kinds of things. You know, the nice thing about this remote environment is that you know, in the past, those maritime security dialogues at, at CSIS, they're great in-person events, but you can only bring so many people from the D.C. area. You might get a couple hundred people there, but now they're virtual and online. So you can go online to uh, usni.org, click on the events tab, and you can join that virtual event from any, anywhere you are in the world, deployed, shore based. That, you know, just depends on, on your uh, uh, connectivity. So that'll be a cool event on the 6th of August. Uh, check that out. I uh, also wanted to make um, note of the fact that uh, we've got the deadline coming up for the first ever Naval Fiction Contest, which we're sponsoring with SIMSAC this year. Uh, the deadline is 30 September. We've started to see some entries come in, so we're real excited about that. And for more information, you can look in your latest copy of Proceedings, or you can go to usni.org slash essay contest for more information. So, And maybe people saw this, but Top Gun Maverick has been slid to next summer, right? July now. It was moved from um, this July to December and in turn from December to next July. Paramount Studios uh, is very much bullish on having uh, their blockbusters in the theater and not following the Greyhound model. Um, and we've talked about how Greyhound uh, sort of did a kick save by taking it. Apple TV Plus bought it from Sony um, and I think they had a very successful run, but the watching on your phone isn't quite like watching it in a, a multiplex. Um, so Paramount very much wants this to be a visceral thing, and so they've decided to slide Top Gun Maverick to next summer. So hopefully we'll be in a world that we can hang out in theaters by next July. There is <laughs> some crossed. doubt. I mean, like, right, Google is not going back to work in in their facility until next july they've already called it right work from home until next july so that might be smart in terms of uh you know people posturing for daycare and and you know infrastructure and all the other things that happen but uh that's kind of a scary thought as i'm sitting here in my home attic you know right now yeah. another year we've been doing this for four months yeah and, uh, you know the thought of doing it for another year is uh yeah that's a little well, but, but we will do what we got to do, right? We, we yeah, have, absolutely. we have absolutely. managed and yeah. if not thrived. Um, and, uh, so whatever we're here for membership, we're here for people interested in these subjects. And so, uh, let that be a really clunky segue to introduce our guest. <laughs> All right. 
Joining us today from Jacksonville, Florida, is Lieutenant Commander Josh Portzer, a P-8 Poseidon Naval Flight Officer who won third prize in the Naval Institute General Prize Essay Contest this year. His article is called Canyon's Reach, Rethinking the Nuclear Triad in the Autonomous Age, which can be found in the July Proceedings. Good afternoon, Josh. Hey, good afternoon, Bill. Thanks for having me. Hey, thanks for being on. So how are things in Jacksonville? They're good. Uh, they are hot, but uh, you know, as we like to say, it's not not Africa heat, but it is still uh, hot and humid, nevertheless. Uh, we're looking forward to the fall for sure. But other than that, uh, it's great. Can't complain. So you wrote this article last year when you were a grad student at Princeton. Now you're back in Jacksonville, getting ready for your department head tour in a uh, VP squadron. Uh, so tell us a little bit about what this uh, article is about. What is what is the canyon? Sure, absolutely. Um, well, so I first, you know, I got this idea from one of my mentors, uh, Wayne Lewis. I asked him while he was on deployment what was keeping him up at night. And he said, yeah, you should take a look at uh, this this new weapon I've heard of. It's called Poseidon, um, which I found interesting because it's the same name as our aircraft. And uh, and so I did a little bit of research. And, um, and the more I, I found on it, which, you know, I couldn't verify whether it was true or not, I, I found it pretty compelling. So um, my professor was kind enough to let me kind of investigate it and see it through. And, and, and here we are. So uh, kind of a brief recap, um, what Canyon or Status 6 or Poseidon, it's known as any of those three names is, is um, ostensibly, it's a, a Russian kind of super nuclear weapon. So it's this autonomous uh, undersea vehicle, or sometimes it's described as a torpedo. And, you know, allegedly it's able to travel, you know, up to 100 uh, knots speed. It's got a, it's nuclear powered. Uh, it is a uh, nuclear tipped uh, weapon or it can be conventional, but uh, we understand it to, to potentially have, you know, several megaton warhead attached to it um, of the uh, of the nuclear variety and uh, also can travel, you know, intercontinental. So um, I've, you, you find it in the nuclear posture review in 2018. So it's explicitly mentioned. Um, and so once you kind of wade through some of the the, the Russian state hype about it and, and what we think to be open source truth value, uh, it, it does seem like a real credible weapon. We think it's going to be. Um, you know, you know, possibly available within the late 2020s. And so um, that's a big deal for the Navy. So trying to convince uh, the Navy that that it should take it pretty seriously is kind of, you know, uh, objective one of the paper. Um, you know, I, I came from a from a ship tour based out of Norfolk before I went to grad school. Um, and you see all the aircraft carriers and the cruisers and destroyers all parked there. And so to have a several megaton warhead go off in the, you know, right next to one of the docks as it's supposed to be designed for it, uh, it absolutely crippled the Navy, especially if that was coupled with, you know, a dual strike with, in San Diego or, or some other place. Um, so aside from that, then the question is, OK, well, what do we do about it? And so I, I try to kind of lay out there's, there's three different choices that the U.S. could take. We could uh, either continue our trajectory of down um, downgrading our nuclear weapons, at least in inventory, where, you know, we've slowly decreased since the Cold War. Um, you know, some spurts of years faster than others. We could resort to diplomatic means and try to re-engage with treaties, maybe extend it to China. Uh, or we could say, okay, Russia, you know, we, we hear you. We're going to, you know, enter the game too. Um, or, or in other words, kind of match uh, weapons capabilities. And so I try to go through the pros and cons of each. Um, I think, you know, the problem we see with the first one is, and this is in a lot of the deterrence literature that we find, if we, if the United States decreases our inventory enough to where Russia greatly surpasses us in terms of what they have, then in order for our deterrence to be credible, we have to convince Russia that we're going to make them hurt. 
if we decided to use nuclear weapons. And what some might argue that results in is us being committed to striking large population centers. Or, and that's the, the doctrine that we found at the very beginning of the Cold War, which has long since been shown to be you know, not okay with the, with the law of armed conflict. Um, and if we're, if we're not willing to do that, which we shouldn't be, then that option kind of goes away. The second option is to try to resort back to diplomacy. Uh, maybe we do an, an, a new New START treaty uh, maybe we try to rope China in because China hasn't been a part of any of these agreements. The problem with that, of course, is that Russia hasn't really been a, a credible partner in this. We know that they've been cheating quite a bit um, with with compliance, not with just New START, but with many other treaties. Uh, and Russia's shady behavior doesn't seem to be um, you know, decreasing any time in the near future. I mean, I could cite a bunch of the recent issues. There's certainly the, the, the alleged bounties uh, that have been uh, talked about in Afghanistan, for one. Um, and, and certainly I think trying to get on equal footing with Russia is going to take a, a bit of time as, as far as our diplomatic efforts are concerned. This is the kind of leaves the third option, which is that we, you know, kind of ante up and we, uh, look at developing some of these weapons too. I should add that the Poseidon weapon is only one of four kind of super nuclear weapons that Russia has been advertising. And so, uh, the real question is, do we, do we want to match that capability? Do we think that that's a worthwhile investment? There are some some pros and cons, of course, to, to what some people might say is an arms race. Um, I, I think that you have some scholars that say, look, you know, this is a chance for us to get kind of our industrial base back. Um, we don't have to be, you know, making scores of nuclear weapons, but we do need to be investing in technology that we can readily uh, and rapidly produce. Um, so that's kind of one aspect of it. I think the greater aspect, too, is, you know, what, where does the U.S. want to see itself in the world and what does it want the world to look like? And so if we are OK with other countries kind of taking um, dominant controlling postures over you know, international affairs, then it's fine for us to kind of continue to decrease our stockpile and just kind of accept that. There's a line of thinking that our strategy and grand strategy should be much more pivoted to something called offshore balancing. So maybe we're decreasing our, our footprint. We don't have a carrier in every ocean, um, but we, you know, we're able to, to send powerful contingents uh, when, when needed. Um, but that comes at a cost. At the same time, hegemony, hegemony is uh, is also very costly. And so uh, if we want to continue to have that kind of influence in the world, then we've got to kind of put our money where our mouth is. Um, and so that's kind of where I where I leave it. There's a couple of objections that I address uh, in the paper as well. Um, and there are certainly numerous objections uh, that the people have uh, drawn since I've written it. But that's uh, at least intended to be the conversation starter. Gotcha. So, so Russia's building the mother of all torpedoes. So, you know, a few years ago, it was, it was um, popular to talk about the mother of all bombs, right? The Moab that the U.S. Air Force had and was dropping on cave complexes in Afghanistan. But so you're talking about the, the mother of all torpedoes, this monster torpedo, nuclear tipped, 100 knot speed, capable of being launched from a Russian submarine. I, I think uh, the Oscar II is the type of submarine that, that they're using, you know, whether it's uh, way up in the North Atlantic, even almost in home waters, right? Launch this thing, it travels at, you know, fairly high speed for a underwater vehicle. Uh, and the, the objective of it is to strike a place like Norfolk. As you said, the carrier appears at Norfolk. That would be a strategic strike. Um, why'd they build it? Why are they building it? Why, what's the need in Russia's calculus for having this kind of a, a weapon? That's a, that's a great question, Bill. Uh, I, you know, I've, I've written another paper uh, that's at review in one place. And, it, you know, I think we, this, this escalatory 
uh, nuclear posturing. Uh, what I personally think is that it's it's Russia playing to the international audience, saying, "Hey, look at us! You know, we're we're here. We mean business." The, the Russian superpower is, is again on the rise. But I think it's also a performance to their domestic audience. And it's to say, hey, look look at your strong leadership. Look how much might we have. You know, Russia has gone through multiple periods of kind of, um, of embarrassing and, and uh, you know, facing moments. And so, you know, there's certainly the, the financial crisis that, that Russia endured, um, you know, at the turn of, you know, the 90s. And I think that, you know, it's still kind of recovering from that um, being kind of tossed into this international financial order, but not really being prepared for it. And um, certainly, I think in the world where resources are starting to become more and more scarce, um, they see themselves, I think rightfully so, as, as, as a major competitor along with Russia and, and the United States. It just so happens that Russia and China are a little more uh, aligned and that they're both kind of revisionist powers trying to, to buck the, the current international order. I read a couple of things about Canyon, you know, we've, uh, or Poseidon 6, Dennis 6, Poseidon Canyon, whatever you want to call it, right? right? We've, we've published some pieces uh, by other authors over the last couple of years as sort of information has dribbled out about this. And, uh, you know, there was some speculation that the Russians were purposefully leaking some of it to get a reaction from the United States, right? Um, and some of that um, analysis uh, seems to indicate that the Russians are fearful of uh, U.S. ballistic missile defense, right? So the uh, the Aegis Ashore facilities in Romania and in, and in Poland, and that the U.S. might be able to build um, a missile defense capability that would uh, not, if not nullify, at least really weaken Russia's ICBM and, and inter intercontinental ballistic missile, you know, sub-launch ballistic missile uh, threat. And so having this, you know, sort of sneaking one in under the radar, so to speak, or underwater, um, uh, is a way to offset the U.S. advantage in ballistic missile defense. What do you think about that? Uh, funny you mentioned BMD. I've, I've got a, uh, a piece that's coming out here, uh, hopefully in the next week or two, um, that kind of talks about, it's with two other authors, it talks about kind of the pitfalls of BMD. Uh, and so I don't, you know, I'll open up a can of worms here. I think BMD is problematic for a couple of reasons. Uh, one of it is that, it's really expensive, and we haven't really gotten it to work consistent, consistently well. Um, and so, I, you know, other countries are watching that too. I think the other thing to keep in mind with BMD is, you know, our our deterrent force against a country is so much greater than the defensive capabilities that we purport to have. So, Russia is not necessarily going to abstain from launching nuclear weapons because it thinks that our BMD systems are going to defeat it. They're going to not launch nuclear weapons because they think that uh, we're going to launch them back. Uh, and we're going to make them hurt sensibly as much as uh, as they're making us hurt. I think what you do allude to, though, and I agree with you 100%, is um, the perceived conventional advantage of the United States is grossly uh, stronger than than Russia's. And so Russia perceives that as a threat. It's the same thing that you see uh, between India and Pakistan. So India has arguably a much larger, more capable conventional force. And so in order to offset that conventional capability, Pakistan says, well, look, I've got these nuclear weapons. Don't mess with me. So I think you've got some similarities there with Russia. So to that point, how far are we in terms of the R&D or the development of a Canyon-like device? Well, that's a, that's a great question. <laughs> Probably one that couldn't be talked about on a podcast. I'll say, you know, all of the research that, that I did on it, it was all open source. Um, and so everything, you know, at least... From my knowledge, none of the things that I'm talking about are, are classified. But I would I would hope that we are actively looking at that you know course of action for sure. 
a great question. So put on your P8 um, tactical hat. Are, are you guys actively training against this kind of threat? Is this part of the matrix? And uh, if, if not, how would this be employed? You, you, you mentioned that it can go a hundred knots and, and obviously if when this thing zorches into, you know, inside the, the, the bridge tunnel and, and goes off, it'll take out the entire, you know, pier at once. Um, I guess it would be a massive, you know, bubble, right? I mean, what would this even look like? Um, right. So how, how do we defend against it? What, how would it be delivered? What, again, all on class, but just in, in, in theory, because it sounds pretty uh, ominous to me. Yeah, no, uh, thanks for asking that question. It's great. Um, and it also kind of allows me to talk about, I think, some of the problems that other people have had. And I can kind of give my responses to those problems, um, or at least what I think are the responses. So the, to your first question, uh, no, I, you know, to my knowledge, we're not training to defeat this because, A, it's, I mean, it's not operational. And B, I'm not really sure what a, a unit level asset's going to do against it, right? I mean, uh, if it's going on well, or not. You'd kill the sub before it delivered the, the vehicle. Right. Well, right. Well, right. Yeah, we're, we're certainly in the sub killing business. And I would like to say we are absolutely training for that. However, the scary thing about this weapon is, you know, presumably the Oscar two can launch this weapon at wherever the Oscar two is. Uh, and to be sure, the Russian submarines are, are just as sneaky as the U.S. submarines are. Um, but, you know, for all we know, that weapon is just kind of circling in a holding pattern for X amount of time. And that's why, you know, the entire kill chain is underwater for some predetermined amount of time that we have no idea about. So uh, how do we defeat it? It's a great question. One of the, uh, a gentleman who's a colleague of mine said, you know, hey, Minkus, that's, that's why I typically go by in the fleet. This is, hey, Minkus, that's a great paper, but hey, man, we're totally going to, we're, we're totally going to know that's coming and be able to, you know, affect it. To which I would say, well, maybe. The problem is, you know, just like we have war modes of things, uh, I'm assuming that Russia is not going to be using uh, a, you know, 100 knot target um, just for training off the coast of, you know, the eastern shore of the United States. And so it's like, what does that even look like? And just because it can go 100 knots doesn't mean that it's going 100 knots all the time, right? If I'm Russia, I'm going to have it go 100 knots when I really need it to. But if I know that there are certain places where uh, it might be detected by some measure, then I'm going to try to have it be as stealthy as possible. Uh, and there's, you know, all kinds of ways that Russia could do that. I think the other thing that makes this weapon quite dangerous from just a geopolitical sense is, you know, with nuclear weapons that are not underwater, that are ground-based, we have all kinds of ways to to measure or think that we are detecting that maybe a launch is about to happen, right? Uh, whether it's news broadcasts or other stuff. Um, and so attribution is not such a problem. But say that there's like this giant explosion uh, off, you know, the, the coast of Norfolk, and ships are destroyed, and Russia follows the exact same pattern that it's been, uh, you know, doing for the last, I don't know, 15 years, and saying, oh, no, 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 that wasn't, that wasn't us. I don't know what that was. We don't have it. All of our submarines are doing other things. Does the U.S. have the wherewithal to say, no, you know what, I bet it was you, and I'm willing to, uh, to, to stake, you know, millions of lives, both U.S. and Russian, on that bet? And even if we really are, are we willing to then potentially lose even more American lives? Because if we launch against that, uh, then, then what is Russia going to do? And are we willing to accept kind of the potential back and forth? Because you kind of quickly find your way into a, you know, the mad, the mutually assured destruction territory. Whereas Russia detonates it, we, we cut our losses, and then we kind of go back to the, to the drawing board is, you know, one potential outcome of that. So I think whether we could really detect it or defeat it, I would argue that's, that's debatable. 
And that's not something I would take for granted. Um, you know, there was a, a gentleman, uh, I've never been, I've never been quoted uh, in a policy paper. Mark Schneider uh, recently wrote a piece and basically said, hey, that's not how Russia is going to do uh, their first strike. That would be foolish. And again, I would argue respectfully, uh, is it though? Because if you were able to do something and then deny it, uh, and the U.S. doesn't have 100% certainty, then I think that, that gives them a certain strategic edge if they're willing to go kinetic to some respect. Um, you know, another another issue that we we get is, uh, hey, there's there's really no need to uh, to use or expand our weaponry because even if um, the you know the weapon goes off in Norfolk and detonates and you know thousands of lives are lost and we lose our carriers, we can still respond if we wanted to with our traditional triad. To that, though, I would say there's there's a difference, though, because Russia, you know, this weapon, along with these other weapons, there is a certain kind of perceived imperviousness to them. And so we sometimes we talk about in strategy, we talk about escalation dominance or shelling points. So you have like conventional level of warfare, then you have a strategic level of warfare and you can you can escalate from conventional to strategic. And then the question is, does this new line of Russian weapons, is that like a, another kind of strata of escalation where they're able to kind of kick, kick it up a notch where we can't match that? We're still limited by our conventional triad. And if that is, in fact, the case, does that create like a power imbalance that allows Russia to kind of implicitly call the shots? Because one of the things we talk about in the military a lot of times is, you know, behind all the soft power is hard power. Behind diplomatic agreements and whatnot, it's the threat of violence. And whoever has the biggest stick, whether it's craftfully veiled or not, I think a lot of times comes out with the, the majority of the bargaining power. Yeah. So to that point, though, Josh, you, know, you, you there's a there's several tiers there, right? So I think you're talking about, and, and we've had a couple of proceedings articles about this uh, going back a few years, that Russia's relatively new escalate to de-escalate posture, right, or strategy, right, which is go from conventional to small or light nuclear weapons, tactical nukes, which we kind of got out of the business of building and using and employing and putting on ships, et cetera, right, and that you could escalate and then we would not want to counter escalate. We would not want to go from that, which might be small nuclear weapons, all the way up to ICBMs, right? And so that not having that rung on the escalation ladder, I think, is what you're saying is possibly um, disadvantageous for the United States now. I think it's a question we have to ask ourselves. And it's interesting that you, you, know, you bring that up. The United States, from a policy perspective, I think certainly acknowledges um, the escalate to de-escalate doctrine as being an issue. Russia denies that that's part of their doctrine. I think that is a point that could be uh, could be debated further for sure. Um, but the the 2018 nuclear posture kind of calls that out, and that's why there's kind of a been a call uh, to 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 pursue kind of lower yield options for some of these warheads, to, so that we do have the you know what we extrapolate from that is that we do have the ability to strike with some kind of limited nuclear response. Um, rather than just go full throttle. But I think, the, I guess, more generally, the question that I leave is, does the fact that Russia have, you know, if Russia has weapons that cannot be defeated, whether it's a hypersonic air-to-ground missile or it's a, you know, torpedo that's completely underwater and is autonomous and can, you know, remain undetected until it explodes, does that give them kind of a, an extra edge that we, even with our existing triad, we can't really counter I would argue that I do think that, that that does give them kind of a perceived escalation dominance, um, but certainly that's something that could be debated further. So the other aspect of this that 
is unique uh, in this case to the, the the Poseidon or the Canyon statistics is the unmanned underwater vehicle or the UUV. So that's a, that's part of the the title of your of your article. You know, strategic deterrence in the unmanned or the uh, uh, the unmanned age, right? So. What do, you, what do you think about that? Not just in this case of this specific weapon, which which is a you know mother of all torpedoes, an unmanned weapon that could maybe loiter off the east coast of the United States two knots for a very long time. Who knows, right? Um, but also about nuclear weapons on unmanned surface vessels or unmanned air ve- uh, air vehicles. Yeah, great, great question. I mean, I think you know, the question of autonomous weapons in general is something that the DoD is having to have real serious conversations about. Um, and, you know, we we had General John Allen, who's the current president of Brookings, give a great talk about kind of ethics and AI at, at Princeton. Uh, and it was wonderful to hear him talk about it. And I think the takeaway was was twofold. A, you know, we can't we can't cede the moral high ground, which is true. Right. I mean, part of what makes the U.S. U.S. is when we when we fight, we're fighting by, by the rules and we're not we're not taking cheap shots. Um, and I think the second is, though, that we got to start asking this question real seriously. So I think. That's kind of the, the first part of it. The second part is, yeah, are you willing to allow some kind of autonomy to be melded with uh, nuclear weapons? And I think in the paper, I I kind of propose that the question the audience is probably asking is, you know, am I crazy for suggesting this? And I think that the the important distinction to remember is that just because there is autonomy built into the weapon in some portion of the kill chain does not mean that it's free of the woman or the man in the loop. And I think that it's incumbent upon us as we develop things to still have a woman or man in the loop in some aspect of it. But um, certainly, I think to we do need to allow technology to allow us to compete and fight faster because our our adversaries are doing that and we're falling behind. I mean, take just take like cyber defense, right? Um, you have malware um, that can kind of adapt and, and mutate as it needs to. And so to counter that, you know, we need some kind of autonomous system to do it. But for autonomous, you know, code to be trying to defend uh, against, uh, you know, cyber malware, you're probably taking the, the the woman or the man out of the loop in some degree. And that's that causes a lot of discomfort. But it's just we have to make tough choices and we have to make risk decisions. Um, and uh, unfortunately, just kind of abstaining from making those decisions uh, is, is a strategic misstep, I would say. And you have to take the man or the woman out of the loop because of the speed with which you need to be able to defend, right? So if a malware is doing something on your network, that, that's a change that could be happening at the speed of light almost, right? And so for a human being to react to that, um, it, it's just too slow. Right, exactly. And I mean, I think going back to the nuclear example, I don't think you have, you know, your decisions don't have to be that fast. So if you kind of imagine the entire kill chain, it, you don't have to have the entire thing be autonomous. You can still have certain points where the woman or the man decides to, to press the button or not press the button. Maybe they're able to press a recall button or a terminate button and, and you know crimp the, the fuel line. Uh, but I think that if we if we allow our adversaries to continue to advance at the level that they are with AI without putting a, a strong movement forward to, to keep parity, we're going to find ourselves multiple decades behind. Uh, when, when, you know, in the next conflict. Yeah, interesting point. It's also interesting you brought up General Allen. He was a member of our board of directors until uh, 2018. And he also wrote a, a piece on this called AI Will Change the Balance of Power. We published in Proceedings uh, with, he also, his co-author was Amir Hussein. And we published that piece in the August uh, 2018 issue of Proceedings. So uh, anyone who wants to read what General Allen has to think, has to say about uh, 
AI and ethics and the future of warfare. It's a great piece. Yeah, he had another piece called Hyperwar in the Marine Corps theme issue. I want to say it was, was that 2017 uh, I think Marine you're Corps right. issue, yep. um, which is talking about the speed of decision making um, at the unit level. And, and so he is definitely a, a forward thinker um, in, in terms of, you know, OK, I got the technology, but what's the human component? And as you've said, Josh, what, what, are, what is the ethics of of this sort of warfare? Um, you know, so th- those are necessary things to consider. We can have all the gee wizardry we want, um, but if we don't think about the implications of employing these things, then we may find ourselves uh, somewhere we don't want to be. Um, so, Josh, you're in the RAG uh, doing your department head, uh, getting ready for a department head tour. Is this your first P-8 tour that, that's coming up? Um, s- sort of. So I was in the the venerable mighty P-3 uh, for my first tour uh, in Hawaii, which was wonderful. I love that plane. Um, I was able to do the transition while I was at the weapons school. Um, so uh, I you know, was able to convert there and then uh, did some disassociated stuff. So this will be my first operational tour in the P-8. So um, I, I have some stick time in a P-3. When I was aide to Air Lant, we'd use P-3s to get around different places. And uh, I also thought it was kind of cool that everybody prides themselves on the chili that they have in the back, right? Um, and, and so as a TAC air guy, that's sort of an unusual thing to pride yourself about when you're in the airplane. Um, but uh how are you liking the difference between the two airplanes? What would you say to the layman, to our listeners who might be curious about what are the capabilities of the P-8, uh, you know, human factors, all the other things vis-a-vis the P-3? Uh, you know, the, the, the immediate two things that come to mind is uh, the P-3, once upon a time, was able to carry uh, nuclear death charges, uh, which is known as, it was known as the Lulu, um, but the P-8 has a flushable Lou. Uh, so it's got a it's got a running water toilet, which is quite nice. Um, <laughs> in fact, in fact uh, no, you know, the the P three was great. Um, its ability to be slow was great, um, and it it was a phenomenal platform. I think what the P eight brings, um, aside from like kind of the speed and the extra reach, is just because all of the software was um, and, and hardware were kind of done in one go with some iterative, uh, you know, upgrades along the way, things just kind of work better uh, and you don't have to fight the system. You're not having to, to use three or four um, kind of desktop interfaces to use your system. You can use one uh, and it works. Uh, and that takes a lot of the exhaustion out, you know, from the crew, because if you're trying to fight the plane as much as you're trying to fight the mission, then you're fighting two battles. Um, so there's, there's that. And I think that just from the overall you know, noise level, vibration level, um, you know, you're able to kind of come back from a flight and just you're not as wiped uh, as you would have been from from the P3. And certainly I think the P8 brings the aerial refueling capability to it, which um, just gives some some real phenomenal possibilities as far as what the P8 can do on station, both in time uh, and, and again, where, where it can reach out and touch stuff. So uh, quite often a, a P3 mission profile was, you know, 10 or 12 hours, right? Are you guys regularly practicing that sort of profile in the P-8 or is it, I mean, you mentioned the, the refueling capability. So obviously you can go real long if you have to, but generally speaking, shorter flights. Yeah. You know, I, I wish I knew the answer to that off the top of my head, but uh, unfortunately I don't just cause I haven't, haven't had those flights yet in the P-8. Um, I could take a, you know, a swing, I guess you certainly can get to where you'd be going in the P-3 in a much shorter time. Cause that's at least faster. Um, 
and I think that, you know, if the, if the aerial refueling is being flexed, then we're looking at, you know, potentially multiple crews being on the plane. But other than that, I'd have to, I'd have to point you to a real professional to answer that question. And there's, so is there room for multiple crews on the plane for a crew swap in the middle of a flight? Sure. Because <laughs> the P, P, P3 didn't really have that, right? Uh, you know, I would argue there are creative ways to fit people in a P3 uh, and certainly next <laughs> to go. Uh, no, there's there's certainly room in the in the P8. So where do P8s deploy these days? Back in the day, the P3 would go to Keflavik, Bermuda, or SIG if you're an East Coast kind of guy. So, yeah, so I think, you know, you're finding that the the places that we're going more or less are still the same. Uh, you still got, you know, Keflavik and Siganella. Um, you know, you've, we've got a... We've got a homeland defense debt that goes to Hawaii now because all of the squadrons uh, have left Marine Corps Air Station Kaneohe. Um, and so, you know, that's that's a bit of a change. And of course, now, as far as the home bases go, you've got Jacksonville and Whidbey and that's it. But it's pretty much I mean, as far as location and what they're doing, I mean, there's there's not too, too much difference. I would say big picture other than the plane just, you know, can do more things. Yeah. Overseas going to Misawa in Japan and where in the Middle East, Bahrain. Yeah, the same places for sure that the P3 was. I was very privileged. I got to do uh, I got to do two Mediterranean deployments from Hawaii, uh, and then when I was on um, when I was getting qualified on Truman, we did a, another deployment to the Med. So I've done three Med deployments, uh, but that is it. But it has allowed me to uh, to interface with uh, with the Ruskies in some in some shape or fashion along the way, which has been great. So as a TAC Air cool. guy, I have great pride that I've had beers at both the Brass Nut and the Flytrap. That is excellent. And you'll know that, uh, in fact, those have all kind of been combined and been put into Siganella. I've spent, spent quite a bit of time uh, in, in that, what we now make kind of the O Club. Oh, there's only one thing now? They combine the fly trap and the brass nut into one thing? Well, you know, for, for, so for a while, uh, Keflavik wasn't being utilized. So when I was building P3s, um, from what I remember, VP9, I think, was the first one to really open it back up. Um, and it's this beautiful hangar and facilities because it wasn't really utilized after it was kind of built and, and temporarily, you know, kind of shut down. Um, so VP4 uh, came out and relieved them in Keflavik. And that's actually where where our crew um, started our deployment, uh, which was which was incredible. It was like walking back into the Cold War. Yeah. So for the uh, the audience that might not understand what we're talking about, the because the P3 guys, the ASW aircraft guys were land based. Uh, they would have a uh, an O club, a bar, to relax at, and and so when we would divert an airplane um, for maintenance reasons or whatever, um, we we'd make it a point to go to these facilities, uh, and uh, always had a great time. Um, and as we said, the one in, the, in Siganella was the fly trap, and the one in Kef, which is not a tack air destination unless you're doing Iceland, UK gap stuff. Uh, and then a divert is probably a very desirable thing if you can't get aboard because of the sea conditions. Um, but I happened to go to Kef when I, again, when I was eight air land. Uh, it's good to know that the culture is alive and well. Sure is. Our guest today has been Lieutenant Commander Josh Portzer, P-8 Poseidon Naval Flight Officer who won third prize in the Naval Institute General Prize Essay Contest. His article is called Canyon's Reach, Rethinking the Nuclear Triad in the Autonomous Age. Josh, thanks for being on the show, and thanks for writing for Proceedings. Thanks for having us. Well, we'll catch you again next week, and remember, victory begins at the Naval Institute.